0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December 2nd, 2013. This is episode 1,257 of the Survival Podcast. It's a special day um, for all of you, whether you realize it or not. It's not just because we had Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and all are coming. It's a special day because it's the first kind of back-to-work day uh, where you're looking at a new month. And it's the last month of the year. The year's over. Christmas is going to be here and gone like that. And if you celebrate other things or don't pay attention to Christmas, it doesn't matter. December will be here and gone like that. And there will be New Year's resolutions broken left and right within two weeks. And we'll be into another year. 2014. Time passes on whether we're working for ourselves or not, whether we're working for our liberty or not, whether we're working for our freedom or not. It doesn't matter what we do, time continues, and it moves faster than we think, and our lives are limited. And when you get to the last month of a year, you pretty much have the year worn out. But you got a month left, 2013, to make it matter for moving your life forward. And once again, the sound of tick, 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 tick marches on time marches on, and you're either on the sliding scale headed toward liberty, or you're not. You're on the sliding scale headed toward tyranny. These are the only two choices you have in your life. Whether you have greater or less freedom in your individual lives is more about your own making than what governments do and what other people do. There's always ways to adapt. There's always a way to adjust, to overcome, to improvise. Those of us that do... Retain more of our freedom, and those of us who choose not to, that allow life to carry us on like a river, like a a leaf in a river of wind, we get blown wherever society chooses to take us. I bring this up because it is the last day of the month, or the last, the first day uh, back to the the grind of the last day of the month. It's also a day that I'm going to have someone on for you, kind of special. Usually, this is a feedback show. Um, I kind of picked up a cold at the uh at the seminar we did and then going through the weekend and all. Um if you can hear my voice is a little bit hoarse. So I'm going to uh hold off on doing a feedback show. I'll do that tomorrow for you. Uh and I'm gonna play a an interview that we picked up last week that we didn't have time for uh from a gentleman named Wrangler Star. Um, also known as Cody. And uh he's an awesome guy, a lot of you guys wanted to hear him on the show, and you want to talk about somebody that said, Well, hell with this I'm going to make my life the way I want it, and I'm going to do it now. That's Cody and his family. We'll talk about that journey with him today. So it's quite fitting that we have this interview um, on the first show, uh, on the first day of the last month of the year, and we think about that time ticking on. Before I bring Cody on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Uh, everybody, I think, out there that's paid any attention to water filtration uh, knows that one of the best systems you can buy for your money is a Berkey. It's gravity fed, so it's passive. There's no moving parts. There's nothing to fail. If the water comes out the bottom, the, the filters are still good. The water stops coming out the bottom after about 5,000 gallons or something like that per filter. um, You can rinse them off, and if the water starts coming out again, they're 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 good again. Uh, Eventually, you do have to replace them, and you can get them from the Berkey guy as well as get your original Berkey system from there. So the, the key isn't really is Berkey a great system? Does it work great? Does it make great tasting, wonderful water? Does it make water that wouldn't be safe to drink safe to drink? It's why would you get it from the Berkey guy versus anyone else? Well, he's the Berkey guy. Why the heck would you get your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could go to the Berkey guy? In all seriousness, Jeff is one of the largest dealers for Berkey in the world. It gives him a competitive advantage with pricing. He is an absolute maniac with customer service. Um, don't be the guy to get your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy at the gun show that went into this uh, you know preparedness industry last month because he heard it was a good deal or a good idea. Get it from the original. Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, you can find his website at directive21.com. Directive21.com, he has other great things for your prepping needs as well. He's a real member of this community. He's a great guy, and he's a guy you want to do business with. If you're an MSB member, he has multiple discount programs available for you. You'll find that in the benefits section of the MSB. Just go to the MSB and click on the Berkey Guy. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. Uh, my Thanksgiving dinner was better this year because Keith Snow is part of the Survival Podcast community. I don't know about you, but that's how I felt. Uh, I did several things this year uh, that were directly from things that we talked about uh, with Keith at the Thanksgiving interview. And I've been making my turkey the way that he taught me how to do it years ago, ever since he did. And unlike a lot of turkeys that are dried out, I have the juiciest turkeys on planet Earth. And it's really simple. That's just one example of how Keith has been really uh, beneficial to my family and my household. I've learned more about cooking from Keith than probably anyone else out there other than maybe my old business partner, Neil Franklin, that was just a, uh, a tremendous uh, gourmet cook and just really obsessive about it. And it's probably only because I spent more time with Neil than I have with Keith. He's a great guy, and he can teach you to cook seasonally and locally. If you don't think surviving or survival skills include cooking, well, you know, number one thing you look at when it comes to being prepared is generally food and water. And uh if you wanna you want to find out how important knowing how to cook is, live on MRE's for about a month and you'll you'll understand that. But it's also about enhancing the quality of your life and your health, and your health is very important as well. Chef Keith can help you do all of that. Just go to harvesteating.com. He has a great podcast, he has great products including uh, sauces and seasonings. And uh, a great blog, a great YouTube channel, you name it, he's got it. Check him out, HarvestEating.com. Uh, Chef Keith also serves in our expert council, so you can call in questions for him to the Think line if you want to do that. Uh, next up, remember, you can join the Member Support Brigade. You'll support this show at a whopping uh, $0.18.3 cents per episode. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. And first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. You guys all qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after, before you join. Put service discount in the subject line in one or two sentences tell me about your service, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if your prior service. Um if you do join the MSB, understand you get a lot of really great discounts. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks. You'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient 24-block zip files. Uh, it's a great deal overall, but remember, you're also helping support the show and the work we do here. We have a very small number of sponsors. We keep our rates very low so we can have good small companies as sponsors. The primary way that we make money off of this show is from the member support brigade. So it's both a benefit to you and a benefit to us that you consider joining uh, if you haven't so far. I guess the way I could put it to you is if the show's not worth 18.3 cents an episode, why do you listen to it every day? Uh, I don't, I don't mean to say that in the wrong connotation though. Just if you're, if you're thinking about it. Think about it for that. If you want to do it for a Christmas gift for someone, I would say the best way is to click the option to pay by mail with silver or check or money order and uh, just include a note with the uh, form that you want to do that. We do have people that want to do that. It's generally easier. And tell us where you want the login information sent to. If you want it sent to the person when we get it or if you want us to send it to you, uh, so that you can provide them the information. We've had quite a few couples that have bought it one for the other, uh, for example, in the past. And I get that question, so I'll kind of hit that for you guys at the beginning of the month as we're going into Christmas. Before I bring Cody on, let's go ahead and uh, knock out our history segment. There's not a lot um, in 1257 uh, to talk to you about, but there's one very, very interesting thing for me anyway that happened in 1257. And that is um, King Henry the Third of England. Orders the production of a twenty pence English coin of pure gold. It is the four, first high denomination coin minted in England and the first to use gold. Now I want you to think about this: a gold coin considered high denomination was twenty pence. Uh, a pence is is roughly equivalent in the mind, I guess, of the, the the person of the day of what we would today call a penny, a penny. So in 1257. A 20-pence coin was made from gold and considered high denomination. Uh, Talk about the effects of inflation, but that's not the interesting part to me. Here's the rest of that. Unfortunately for King Henry, the bullion value of the coins is about 20% higher than that of the nominal face value, leading to poor circulation as coins are melted down by individuals for their gold content. This is one of the first, uh, you know, modern, I guess you'd call it that, or mid, you know, I guess it's one of the first times in history that I've ever read about the effects of something called Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law didn't exist as a, as a, as a known law, or a, let's say it wasn't written yet. Gresham's Law actually doesn't come around formally until, um, in 1858 by a guy named Henry Dunning McLeod. Um, uh, he was the guy that kind of coined the concept, um, and there's a guy named Thomas Gresham from 1519 to 1579 who was an English financier who really is kind of the the beginning of the whole concept. That's why it's named after him of, of Gresham's Law. But the basic concept of Gresham's Law is when government over, overvalues one type of money and undervalues another, the undervalued money will leave the country or disappear from circulation into hordes why the overvalued money will flood into circulation. The most modern example of this in the United States was in 1965, when the U.S. ceased to manufacture silver coinage in denominations of dimes and quarters, 50-cent pieces, and dollars. and went to a copper-clad coin for those denominations. Up until that time, dimes, quarters, 50-cent pieces, and dollar coins were all minted in 90% silver. And when this happened, the government said, people will not hoard. You will not hoard silver. You will just go on with your life and you will use 1963 coins and 1965 coins interchangeably. And that's what you're going to do because we say so. And what happened was it it didn't happen. Very, very quickly, people began to pick out all the silver coins. People immediately noticed the difference in, in the coinage. People knew that silver had value and that, that copper wasn't worth much, especially in the small amounts that it was included in the, the smaller denomination coins. So the government just continued with business as usual and said, well, nothing will happen, but something did. Uh, massive amounts of coinage, everything from 1964 back, in denominations of a, a dime and higher, was was cold from circulation. When I was a kid in the 70s, you could still find an occasional silver coin. My grandmother was a waitress, and I would sit with her and count her tips, and we would always find in her tips two or three silver coins on a you know a night where she got a lot of tips. Uh, keep in mind that the time frame people tipped in denominations like 50 cents or something like that on, you know, a di- she worked at a diner where a, a tab might be five bucks or less. So it was typical that people would tip with coinage and she got a lot of coins in her tips and she would always call out the silver. And my grandfather a big box of silver coins from these coins being called out. By the mid 80s, there was almost no uh, amount of silver being found. You'd occasionally find one or if you found a bunch like from a store or something like that, it was usually somebody, some kid raided the parent's stash and didn't know what they had. And, and today, it's almost, you know, almost never that you find silver coins. And I guarantee you, when you do find one, what do you do with it? You pluck it out and you hoard it. Because that silver has value, and the money that the government replaced it with doesn't. We think of that as something modern. We think of that as something that... You know, is new. It's at least in the modern era. It's in you know the 1800s forward or something like that. Well, here it is in 1257. A king issued a decree which was not to be questioned. A king who was not elected. A king whose law was sovereign over the land. Who could have your head cut off by saying, cut his head off. Even he, when he said, this is worth this much and this is what it'll be, could not control that. The market in the end decided. There was a couple of things he could have done differently that would have changed that. One would have been, well, you could have made it a 50 pence coin, uh, without enough gold in it to fully back it. So that it was backed by gold, but accepted at a larger than face value. This is how monetarily backed coins or gold backed or silver backed coins can work in circulation. The face value has to be greater, greater than the intrinsic value or no more than equal. And equal's dangerous. Equals very dangerous because metals fluctuate rapidly. Metals fluctuate rapidly. What that means is that if you're too close to the spot price with the underlying intrinsic value during a fluctuation, the whole thing can get turned on its head. Another way to do it would be with paper money backed by gold and silver. Like we had $1 silver certificates and $20 gold certificates at one time in this country where you could go get $20 worth of gold. Now, the government at the time decided what $20 worth of gold was, but if it changed drastically, the paper currency could simply be exchanged for a greater currency to keep everything running. And in the end, what you see here is that governments should not be able to control money. When they do, it's only a matter of time until, well, metaphorically, they screw the And And this is just one example that even a king, by decree, could not control the economics of money. For government to believe that it can, always results in failure. It will be no different this time around, but it will be different this time around because then was then and now is now. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. 1257, first example I know of Gresham's law uh, impacting a modern world currency. I'm sure it's happened earlier, but that's the one that I know uh, to be the, the earliest that I've ever read of so far. Um, there's one other little footnote here, and I'm going to uh, to read it to you and I'm not going to tell you why it's really that important, but it's very important and you'll find out tomorrow why. There was an eruption of the Somalis volcano on Lubbock Island in Indonesia Indonesia. This was a very large eruption, and it's the first of many things that will kick off something that will drastically impact society for hundreds of years. You'll have to tune in tomorrow to see what that is. And with that, I want to say, uh, hey, Cody, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Great. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Hey, man, I've heard great things about your YouTube channel, and I checked it out, and I understand why. And you're kind of living off the beaten path now, doing a lot of homesteading things and uh, living a, a different lifestyle than you were a while ago. Can you kind of just talk about how you, you got to where you are? I find that almost everybody I interview, um, almost none of them are like, well, I was born a homesteader, I've always been a homesteader, I'll die a homesteader. Or, you know, I was born, we had a guy out at this falconry, you know, I was born a falconer and I'll die. It was. It's almost always, no matter what we have people want to talk about, they had some of this kind of crooked path that, that got them to where they are. Could you kind of just talk, you know, a little bit about how you ended up being this guy on YouTube that's teaching people these uh, these forgotten skills?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it, that that really resonates with me. You know, we followed that crooked path, and you know, it was ten years ago or so. My wife was a working professional, and I had a online business. We're living right in the city in Portland, Oregon. Uh, two six figure incomes. You know, just everything the American dream told you was was the you know the essence of life. I think once we started to have a family, and looking around, realized that we did not want to raise a family in the city. And then with the housing bubble and just the way that the economy, just the, the, the scary signs that the economy was starting to show, you know, we realized how vulnerable we were in that situation. And we uh, determined right there uh, to make a radical change. And we looked for several years, you know, every weekend we'd get out in our van and drive around looking for remote properties, looking to find somewhere where we could be more self-reliant and not be so dependent upon infrastructure, municipal waters, uh, Up using the grocery store for our pantry and just become um, have some more options.
0: That's interesting. I I just recently we had moved out into a remote location and we're still in a rural location, but we kind of came back to where the family was because it just didn't work for my wife. And on the second move back, it took about almost a year for us to find a property, and you guys took a, a couple years. Um, that's a difficult thing. I guess if, you know, maybe you guys were kind of, you know, trying to to make it somewhat recreational, but it it is a hard thing, and I think it's important that people understand that it does take that kind of time sometimes to find what you're really looking for, right?
1: It's very difficult, and I counsel with people on this question all the time. And one thing that where you can really make a mistake is people get excited, and they say, okay, we're going to make the move, and they resolve to do it. And they go outside, start finding property and they think that they need to buy something right away. Well, the problem is, is that there's so many things that need to, need to take into consideration. Water, you know, that was a major concern for us. I needed to have a, a way to, to get water so we could irrigate, we could grow, we could depend on an off-grid situation, you know, so that really limited things. And also growing season and having a proper south face, having enough timber, uh, that you can sustain yourself with firewood or, having enough timber to make lumber. So all, there's so much to consider. And I think one thing you have to really be careful of is you don't want to visit a place in the summertime when you have no idea what what it's going to be like in the winter. You know, we have a neighbor, for example, it's a beautiful piece of property, but all winter he has no sun on it. And we call it the uh-huh. ice box because it's just frozen all the time. So my advice would be to take your time, and it's actually better if you could come into the region, at least identify the region that you want, rent something or stay in a trailer or whatever you have to, and watch the seasons, and look at it in the winter, look at it in the spring. Does it flood? Does it not flood? Do the creeks go dry? You know, all those things are so important.
0: Yeah, I think in talking to people already living there is a great idea, too. And sometimes that will teach you things that you wouldn't have otherwise known. So, I mean, if you go to an area and you think it's really nice, but everybody you you try to talk to doesn't even want to talk to you, that that might indicate that maybe it's not the best place for a new person to show up or Likewise, when you start talking to people and everybody's like, oh, let me tell you about this and let me tell you about that, you know you're in a more welcoming area because the people that are going to be around you, even in a remote location, are also important because commu- community actually gets more important when there's lower numbers of it.
1: You're right about community, Jack, and that's a really a good point, talking to the neighbors because the neighbor knows. He's lived there for 20 years. He knows that the, the lower field, you know, floods out in the wintertime or, or the house has got serious issues, you know, and you just are not going to get that oftentimes from your real estate agent and i think you're also right about talking to your community here you know, the funny thing jack is that when we lived in the city our next neighbor neighbors were ten feet away we lived there for years we never once were in their home they were never in our home we didn't know each other you know maybe we would wave as they were passing on the street but here we have two miles to our closest neighbor and they're over our house you know and i'm helping trading firewood and, and he's providing this and he sharpens my chainsaws It's so funny that we're separated by distance, but we're so much closer. I think what it is is that it's a rugged environment out here and we know that we very well may need our neighbors sometime. So it just, I think people just expect that and you understand that, you know, that you have to be helpful. You have to volunteer your time because it may come, you may have an emergency or situation where your life may depend on your neighbors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think that what you're saying is very true. And When we were getting ready to move up to Arkansas, there was only, I think, five families on our whole road. Like once you came off of the blacktop and hit uh dirt, there was like four or five households and, and four families. And even before we moved there, when we were just going up on weekends and getting things ready, we knew the people there better than the people we knew in the suburban neighborhood we lived in. And it, that, that's really it. Seems it seems weird, I guess, if you've never experienced it. But once you have, it makes perfect sense. Did I lose you? Oh
1: no, sorry about that. I was, I was uh, waiting
0: for you to go. On. No, <laughs> yeah. no. Okay, I'll just. Give, I'm, really, I'm going to wait for a pause there so I can find the <laughs> spot and I'll edit that out. Loud. So when we when somebody's like, kind of gets to the point you guys did where. They are just like, you know, this isn't working anymore. You know, can you give anybody advice on making that final choice, pulling the trigger and doing it? And if they do decide they're gonna, they're gonna move out and, and get out of the city, get out of the suburbs, and leave behind a, you know, a good paying job, where do they start?
1: You know, that's the hardest question to, to to answer because I don't know the background of who it is I'm talking to. You know, are they a tradesman? Are they an entrepreneur? You know, how do they? What abilities do they have of generating income? The number one thing is you got to be out of debt. If you have credit cards, if you're paying a note on brand new cars, that you cannot drag that with you because it'll it'll take you down. It's a millstone around your neck. When a guy is debt free and you don't have a lot of payments, you don't require that much to exist. And you get rid of all those credit cards and you get rid of all of those uh, second mortgages and, and such. So the thing about the thing about <laughs> It's difficult to generate income, more difficult in a remote area, because there just aren't as many opportunities. There aren't as many people. So you can't look at yourself as being one-dimensional. So many people now identify themselves with their career. I'm an electrician. That's what I do. I don't do drywall. Or or I'm a painter. That's what I do. And I I don't do framing. You know, the old farmers, the old old homesteaders, they did everything. They were farmers. They were um, blacksmiths. They were uh, roofers. You know, they did whatever they had to do. So you need to really be multifaceted, and you need and you can't bring any pride into it. It may be that you need to go to generate some income. You need to go and, and chop firewood and sell it and deliver it in your truck, or it may be that you need to go down and, and build fence uh, for a summer for your neighbor. You got to be willing to do whatever it takes, and um, just really. Really open yourself up and have your eyes open to any opportunity that you can to generate income.
0: What are some ways that people can do that? I mean, that's that's one of the biggest things that holds people back. We're we're actually looking at building right now uh, an off grid community uh, and, and bringing in you know a hundred folks onto about two hundred and fifty acres that that want to live this way. And one of our biggest concerns is making sure that there's avenues of income and commerce for people.
1: Yeah, well, that's a great idea. And it's funny, I mean, that's that's been how civilization has worked forever. And it's only in the last hundred years, and especially in the United States, where we all have to have our own and and we can't be bothered by community or having any needs. We want to be an island in the middle of the sea. But when you talked about buying a big property with multiple people, there's so many advantages to that. I mean, I look around at my neighbors and everyone's got the $25,000, $30,000 tractor that they use maybe a couple weeks out of the year. It sits there. You know, when you have, and not everyone can do that. And then you no. multiply that because you, then you have to have a wood splitter and everybody's got a wood splitter and then you have multiple chainsaws. When you have a community that comes in and you can, you can do it, you know, if you can deal up, deal up the, or deal with the finances where all right, we're going to buy a tractor, and I'll plow your field, and you cut my firewood. I mean, just think of how the expenses go down. The problem with that, though, is there's always somebody that doesn't pull their weight or doesn't take care of it or brings yeah. it back empty, you know, so you got to work out those details. But, yeah, communities really help, um, and there's so many opportunities with online businesses now. I mean, My grandfather worked as a mechanic. He went to the same place, worked for two companies entire, his entire life. And when he looked upon me and, and, and looked at how I have online businesses that generate income from whether it be YouTube or online businesses, he just can't understand it. He can't understand how a man can earn a living and not show up a bunch of time clocks. So as difficult as times are and, and as scary as they are now, there are so many opportunities. Um, if you just think about it, that you can market a product. People are really desiring for things that are high-quality, handmade. People are sick of the Walmart throwaway economy. So if you can make something and do it in an excellent way and market it, you can sell it.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that that is one of the things that actually makes it easier today than it was in the past. I think people have a a real habit of waxing nostalgic for things and thinking, well, it would have been easy back in the, home, the real homesteading days. And, oh, yeah, it would have been great. You would have been out there with typhoid and, and cholera and, and no doctor and I mean, it it, it it probably has never been easier to do than it is right now. I think the the difficulty is our self-made traps. You, you know, you alluded to it. If you try to do this while you still have car debt on two fifty thousand dollar cars and student loan debt of sixty thousand dollars on a on a on a uh, education that's not doing anything for you, it, it's it's almost impossible to do. But if you free yourself of those things, today we can do these things relatively easily. And I think part of it is pulling the expectation back. Especially in, you know, your building years, you know, you're not going to be moving into a McMansion with everything already. How, when you guys moved, did you guys get a place with a house on it that needed work or did you build or how did you, like when, on day one when you showed up and said, okay, now it's ours, what what were you dealing with and how did you take it forward?
1: Well, it was a disaster. It was November. Uh, we have harsh winters up here. It was very cold and we took possession of this place and it had been uh, a foreclosure and abandoned and the plumbing was out and there was no heat in it and it was in terrible condition so I mean we really got a slap in the face we went from a comfortable very comfortable uh, city home with all modern conveniences and furnace and all of that stuff to uh, wondering you know what are we doing out here you know no, as I said no firewood cut no way to heat the place the plumbing didn't work no water so that was really uh, an eye-opener for me it saw it showed to me how vulnerable we were Especially in the middle of winter. So we toughed it out for that first winter and that really motivated me to get things ready. The next winter was very different. You know, I knew what to do. I knew how to get it going. But I would really recommend to people, a lot of, it sounds very romantic and it's exciting to get a raw piece of land and go out and develop it. And, and I've done that. You know, I've worked in the trades. My dad was a general contractor. I've had construction companies, escalating companies. So I know what it takes to do that. And even for me, having my own equipment, the expense, for the first time in in the history of this country, it actually costs more money to build than it does to buy something already existing. And if you don't have the abilities to put in a septic system, to put in a well, to cut a foundation, to pour your own concrete, all those things, it's going to bury you. Um, So I really recommend to people that they get something that's already established. Those outbuildings have so much value that they're, they're so easy to overlook. Uh, until you're in the middle of winter and you have a dry roof to put equipment under, you know, in that driveway. And when it costs $400 a load to bring gravel and rock up for your driveway, and when all those things are in, it's just, it's such a so much smarter to buy something that's already established. Location is the key thing. I don't care if you're living in a trailer, you know, swallow your pride and live in a trailer. But location yep. The location is number one thing. You can change your living conditions. You can't change your location.
0: No, I completely agree with that. Not the way that the average real estate agent means means it when they say location, 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 which means paying a half a million dollars for a one-bedroom condo in a trendy area. But when it comes to this type of thing, there's a reason you're doing it. And the outbuilding comment you made I think is so easy for people to gloss over. The place we're at now is a little three-acre piece, and the biggest selling factor for me, and there were some things we gave up by going a little bit smaller Orlando, a little bit closer to town than I wanted to be. But there is a 2,000 square foot steel frame three uh, three bay outbuilding uh, insulated, and another uh, 800 square foot steel frame uh, building that's insulated with 10 foot ceilings. And my wife just like she's like, well, it's a good man cave, and I'm like, you, you don't you don't get it. That's you know thirty thousand dollars worth of infrastructure that frankly I can afford to buy this house, but I don't know when, if ever, I could afford to pay p- p- pour those slabs and put those buildings up. And the reality is that's the kind of infrastructure you make an investment in when you don't plan on leaving because the advantage as a buyer is this: the, the, the seller, unless they've done that a long time ago, is never recovering that investment. It won't go into the appraisal at anywhere near the cost of putting it in. And, and those two things have with the – we do a lot of educational stuff and we have people come here. And we just did one, you know, we had it was 75 degrees the first day of the event, and it was 32 degrees and raining the next day of the event. Having that space for those people, let alone animals and gear, is, is so valuable. And I, was, I told my wife after it was over, we are so blessed that that stuff was here because we wouldn't have it if it wasn't here.
1: Yeah, it is so valuable. And then you made a good point. They really don't reflect in the price. I mean, they maybe a little bit, but they're essentially a, a freebie. And when you have got to put up a, a forty by sixty steel building and shell out, you know, the electrical and the insulation and the slab and the doors, when you're talking, you're looking at fifty, sixty thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're looking at ten in the concrete slab. Well, you
1: know, and insane. another thing, another thing from those. I mean, I know you guys are coming from the same perspective that we are, but when we first started looking for remote properties and, and started talking about this to our friends, they thought we were absolutely nuts. We're yeah. getting to the point where our family felt like they needed to have an intervention, that we were going off the deep edge. Because you know, this was just something that, even 10 years ago, was very, very strange. Well, now, uh, even the people that are the most blind, the people who live with the urban lifestyle, come out here, and the comments are different. They're not, why would you want to live out here in the middle of nowhere? They're contacting me and asking me, would it be possible for us to keep some things out there? Would it be possible for us to put up a small cabin? And they're seeing things and they're storing water in their basements. And and people are scared of their understanding that how precarious uh, things are right now. And so these outboat buildings are essentially, you know, a lifeboat uh for, for loved ones, for people who are not have not been prepared. But when I look at these buildings and I'm looking out the window now, you know, it wouldn't take very much to convert that into a safe and warm and comfortable living space for, for family and loved ones.
0: You know, and that's one of our plans is we have the one buildings, uh, not real far, but far enough away from the house that it would, it's, it's kind of on its own, and uh, it's about 800 square feet, and we're looking at kind of making it more of a living space, more for students in general, peacetime call it, but for family, because we have family that just won't do it. You know, they just won't. They they know. I mean, one is a police officer, and he the things I'm telling him, he knows, and we'll have conversations, and he nods his head, nods his head, nods his head, and then when it starts to hit him a little bit, like he he works for a place here in North Texas. I won't say the city, but Fort Worth is is near where he is, and I talked about how that, like you know, their their pension funds are you know in severe danger in Fort Worth. And, you know, that kind of hits a little too close. And then also we're talking about football and having that space for them is a huge advantage. So I'm not going to let them be on their own, but I only have so much room in a house. And then the other thing is everybody's worried about the economy and they should be. But one of the biggest knockout blows we could we could ever come up with. and I'm sure you're aware of this would be a a global pandemic. And if I had people coming here that, yes, I can take in, yes, I have things for in that scenario, I really need an isolation area for them for a couple of weeks to make sure they're not bringing it with them. And and it serves that purpose too. There's like, it's in permaculture, we call it function stacking. And you start looking at that infrastructure. There's so many functions that it, it brings to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And, and I do like the, I hadn't really thought about the isolation, but I think a pandemic is a, is a, is highly probable, just like you say. And that was also one of the important things when we were figuring geography and location, you know, I'm, I thought about that. How do you prevent you know, becoming overrun? You know, so if you live in a place with timber, you know, take those provisions. You know, you, how long would it take a guy to, to go drop 100 or 200 trees across the road? And, you know, you didn't limit the place to walking traffic only. So it, there's yep. a lot to consider. So much to consider. I mean, you can't prepare for everything, but you just, you do what you can.
0: Yeah. And when we lived in Arkansas, that was exactly, we even had the trees already planned. We had a, we had a print with like where they are. Where that, um, you know, if, if you were working in concert with a neighbor that, that kind of got on board toward the end, you could hand it to him and say, go down there and here's where, here's where to drop these trees. And it's it's things like that that, um, you know, made, I hope that never becomes necessary. I, I know that people like us get accused of like, you know, waiting for that day. Nobody wants it, we're like the soldiers, nobody wants war less than us. But we're just in touch with the reality that it could be that serious someday
1: yeah and it's this it, it's uh, I have rejected the 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 prepper label i I don't use it I'm not associated with that because of it, it, what it's become on the internet and I look at myself as a homesteader yeah these things may happen, but they're not driving uh they're not driving my life I'm not consumed by them because the matter of, the fact of the matter is it's a better way to live regardless of what you think is going to happen with the economy but to be able to have your family gathered around you, to eat meals together, to slow things down, uh, is worth everything. You know, we made the decision. We, you can choose to uh, have take all your time up um, making money to pay for uh, the gas bill, to pay the McMansion mortgage, to pay for the new cars. Either way, you're going to be working. What we've chosen to do is we work just as hard as the guy that's doing 60-hour weeks in a financial institute. But our work, we're benefiting from all the labors. When my son and I go out to cut firewood, we receive 100 percent of that benefit. We don't uh, aren't going and and the the tax man taking his cut, the you know, state taking their cut, you know, to buy the oil. So it's it's about a it's about a, a a better lifestyle. It's about a slower lifestyle. It's getting back to reality.
0: I think it's about a human lifestyle. I don't think human beings were meant to live the way we are doing it right now. I, I really don't. I think that. All of this technology that advanced, what it should have done is freed people to live more like like you and I are living right now. And it resulted in exactly the opposite. And there's a lot of economic components to that that we probably don't need to get into. But, you know, we went from a place where uh, there was a lot less automation, a lot less technology, and dad worked and mom stayed home with the kids, to a place where, you know, there's a lot more technology, a lot more automation, actually a lot less of a need for human labor, uh, to provide what society needs and yet now mom works and dad works and you know, if, if they do really well, maybe somebody's paid to stay with their kids while they're not with their own kids. It's, it's kind of like society's upside down on its head.
1: And you're right. We're not intended to live this way. Uh, we've got a lot of forested land. I work in the forest a lot and, and I look at the trees that grow too close together and they're sickly and they're unhealthy and as soon as a bug or a bark beetle comes through, it just takes out everything. A properly managed for- Forest where the trees are spread out a little bit and they have room to to grow and have their own son are strong and they don't, they're not so susceptible to these diseases. I mean, it's the same analogy with just stacking people into these cities. It's not a good environment. And when you take, and it's really ultimately designed to destroy the family and it does destroy families. When you take the husband out, put him on a business trip and he's out away from the family, you're subjected to, um, Temptations and things, you know, the opportunity to make decisions that you wouldn't do if you were, you know, if you were with your family. Take the wife out, get her, uh, her, have her own life going, separate bank accounts. Now the kids are in sports all day. What type of a family is that? You have some people living together, but you don't have a family. And it's no surprise why the divorce rate is so high. It, it takes work, and, and the family needs to be together, working together for a common goal. When the wife is rowing in one direction and the husband is rowing in the other, they both turn circles. But when you're united, you can actually go somewhere and create something.
0: You you hit on something there that's one of my biggest pet peeves with modern society, separate bank accounts. Um, I find this to be one of the most oddly disturbing things about modern society, and I know a lot of people that do it. And I said to one of my friends, you you lay down next to that woman every night and trust her with your life because if she wanted you dead while you're asleep, you're dead. You won't trust her with your money. And, and and, you know, if one of you loses your job, what are you going to do? Tell the other one, well, you're out if you can't pay your half of the mortgage? It just makes no sense to me. And the more disturbing thing was his answer. And his answer was, well, we're both doing so many things at one time. We're not doing it because of trust. I started to feel a little bit better about it. He said, logistically, we can't be telling each other when one of us wrote a check for something or did something because, you know, one of us could bounce a checking account. So we did it logistically. It's like all our savings are communal, but our checking accounts are separate. And I'm like, well, that means you're not even communicating with each other about your daily activities anymore. And, and that is the society we're in. And it's I say it, and people get upset with me, but I'm like, we are a sick society today. And I don't mean sick like demented sick. I mean like we're so far from being human beings anymore, and being communities and family units anymore. And it's a mental illness. It's not a mental illness like. Dementia or multiple personality disorder, but it's a mental illness of disconnection from the human element that is society. And you're right. It is, I think in some ways, it's a collective design to destroy the family unit because the more unified a people are, the the more difficult they are to control. And if you want to divide a people, instead of trying to divide them just into races or ethnic or uh, income, Divide them at their own family level. And at that point, they're totally divided, and you have complete control. And that's how I feel like the corporatocracy and the, the plutocracy in this nation is controlling it through division. Um, it's one thing that they own the government and that they can get laws passed at will because they fund both sides. But it's a complete other thing that they've set up this entire basically a marketing and financial campaign designed around you have to have more, you have to have more, and put people into this. Constant gerbil wheel.
1: Yeah, and and the separate bank accounts. You know what? I, what I've looked, what what I see with so many people, it's a it's leaving the back door open. It's yeah. that little that little guarantee, that little um, thing where if everything goes bad, it's my it's my parachute. I can bail out. You know, I'm not going to be left destitute. You know, and sometimes we need to to be have in the common fight together. You know, I like the story of Cortez when he discovered the New World. He slipped out and burned all the ships. Therefore, all of his men were of the same mind and highly motivated to succeed. They could not yeah. look to the ships and say, "Well, if things get too bad, off we go. We're going to go back to back to Spain." You know, so having that common goal and 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 having you know everything together. You know, I had a neighbor that had a, was married for 70 years, and I asked him and often talked to him. He would come over at the shop when we're working. You know. What his success was, and he said that him and his wife had agreed years ago that whenever they spent more than $100, they would discuss it. You know, and I, and that was a, that was a large amount when they originally made that deal, and and that number should be higher now. I think that's a wonderful idea with your family. It just, it's not that you need to get your wife's or husband's permission before you spend something, but it shows respect. It just shows that you think enough about them to understand that you're pulling resources for the, for, that, that provide for the family, and that your opinion matters, and yeah. you know, ninety-nine percent of the time you're going to be in agreement, unless you are a you know spendthrift. But I think that that's a, a great policy.
0: No, we do the same thing, and our number is a hundred bucks. And the only time that rule's ever broken is this time of year. If I'm buying her a Christmas present, okay. um, that that way she can't use the number to figure out what she probably is getting because i have one of those wives i mean my wife was the kid that at christmas time would sneak to the presents and you know steam the tape off and slide the box out and see what it was and put it back so she's still got that little girl in her so that's about the only time i don't tell her that i've spent money is if i've bought her a christmas present or an anniversary gift or, or what have you but otherwise i think it's a fabulous thing because it does it's and I think that in a lot of lot of places where, like, let's say the man or the woman, either one makes more money, the attitude is, well, I I bring home the majority of the bacon, so I shouldn't have to ask. And like you said, it's not asking, it's it's respect that this is this is ours. I mean, when you get married, it's a it's a merger, right? It's not it's not like a uh, it's not like a strategic alliance. It's a merger Two have become one. And and if you want to destroy a society, destroy that. And that's. That I feel very much that's what's been done.
1: Yes, it is what's being done, and it's intentional, and it has been intentional for the last 150 years or so. I really, there's just no doubt about it. You know, one thing you touched on, Jack, was um, talking about consumerism, you know, and that's another big thing. You know, it's so interesting having so much money at our disposal 10 years ago when we were doing projects. When I needed something, I thought nothing more than to go to Home Depot and buy whatever it was. I'd just buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it, whatever I needed. And with homesteading and, and with uh, you know, when your income changes and it's going to when you move out to a rural area, you have to have a real paradigm shift in that. We don't, we make a game of this. We don't buy things, uh, anymore rarely. Our clothing that we buy are from the thrift store. You know, we go through and find quality things. You know find things from Pendleton, things that were made, you know, in America, things, you know, heavy wool, you know, nice stuff. You don't have to look like a, a bum. But you can buy something for $10 that you would go to replace it. It would be $150, $200. And when I'm working on the homestead, you know, instead of thinking, well, I need to run into town and buy bolts and buy this and that or i got to buy lumber, you know, it's about tearing an old barn down or going and doing this or making do with this or making do with that or taking something apart. And and you have to really change your way of thinking. The thing that has been most valuable, the most valuable gift I ever received was from my grandfather for my birthday. He was a mechanic and kind of a tinkerer and a machinist and taught me a lot of stuff growing up while I worked in his shop. but He had this huge wooden chest of drawers full of 60-year a collection of nuts, bolts, and cotter pins and washers and fittings. and I mean, You can't even imagine him. It was a truckload just to get it back to my place. But that has just been so invaluable to me. It, what it does is it saves me from going to the hardware store whenever I need something. I am in that bin every day. So, you know, all those things, you know, now's the time to collect those things. If you have family members or your dad has collected this stuff, you know, don't throw any of that stuff away.
0: No, I agree. I'll tell you what. A, a washer out of a bin can save you not the $0.25 the washer would cost, but the 20 bucks that will magically get spent when you go to Home Depot or Lowe's to get the washer. Because, I, I mean, I don't know how many times I've gone out like, what do you need? I need a, I need four bolts, four washers, and four lock washers that will fit in this thing I'm building, and I don't have them. And you go out there, and that, you should you should come back, and you should have spent more gas than you spent money. And you come back with two bags of crap. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's, the, that's also another modern society thing. Because when I was a kid, if we did need something, let's say a washer, right? My grandfather would give me a buck. Hand me a washer like we needed, and send me down to the center supply hardware store in town. I'd ride my bike down there. I'd go in, I'd hand the old guy behind the countertop the washer. He'd look at it, go, huh? He wouldn't even take it with him. He'd hand it back to you. He'd go in the back, and you tell him you need six or whatever. He'd come back and give you eight. Tell your granddad two or free, you know, and and you were out, you know, twenty five cents. And that level of care and concern from a store resulted in buying what you need and leaving. Where now you go in there, you're on your own, you, you spend four hours to find a washer, and you buy crap along the way, and that's by design too, that's just basic marketing.
1: It is, it is by design, you know, and one thing that I really promote on my channel is, is and show people is, is how to repair things. And buying quality is so important, whether it be a shovel or an axe or anything. And what you find out, you know, it, it takes time to learn these old things. And I grew up, to, you know, working the trades and carpentry trades where everything was done with power tools. You know, you use a skill saw for this and use a drill for this and this and everything has to be done. And, and there was no time to do things right or no time to take pride in your work. It was all about production. And one thing that we've really gotten away from is getting back to the joy of using these old tools. And at first, it's really frustrating to go from a handsaw to from a skill saw to a handsaw. But then you find out that the handsaw that you're using, you know, is 40 years old and rusty and hasn't been sharpened. And once you start learning how to use tools and take care of them and sharpen them and use them proficiently, you start to find out that it doesn't take that much more time than it does to break out the skill saw. And then you don't have all the drama and the eye protection and the noise and the sawdust and all of that. And those old ways are so are oftentimes so much better. Because the chainsaw is a wonderful implement. Don't get me wrong; it would be hard to survive out here without it. But I've also made sure to make a point. I'm doing in my latest video series now, where we're building a project and everything's being done from scratch. I'm using my grandfather's axe that he bought in the '30s. I made the handle from Hickley from scratch. I made all the old my old tools with a handmade blacksmith shop, or blacksmith forge that I've got in the shop. I'm hand hewing the beams. No, do I want to do this all the time? Absolutely not. You know, I came here last night and couldn't hold my fork for dinner because my forearms are so tired from using this hewing axe. But at least I want to be able to have a basic understanding of those skills and those abilities if everything goes pear-shaped and I'm not completely destitute or reliant upon uh, oil and gas.
0: Well, and it is what you're probably most known for with your, your channel is all of these projects and things that you've been doing. Like... I'm sitting on your channel right now and I'm seeing a video you uploaded recently called how to make log dogs. Yeah,
1: and you know the content is important. Uh the content on what it is whether it's replacing a shovel handle or building log dogs or timber framing and that's a 50 per, a 50% of the content but it's the idea that's behind it of the homesteading it's the idea of, of rejecting consumerism and rejecting this throwaway society and whenever you need something just to go buy some crummy thing at Walmart. It's about saving money. It's about being frugal. And once you take a tool, an axe, for example, and you bring it back to life and you spend hours and hours learning to sharpen it and custom make a handle, you start to respect the tool and you start to use it proficiently and it starts to trickle down and affect your entire life. You know, and you'd look at things differently, and you look life differently, and then you start keeping bees, for example. You watch the bees, and you start developing the connection and the lessons that God teaches us through creation that you just can't get in the city. When I was in the city, the only thing around me was just billboards and noise and everything just glorified man. But when you come out here, you can slow down, and you don't have all of that chaos and everything screaming for your attention. And you can just have some peace for once and start to live life as it was intended to be lived.
0: Definitely. And, I mean, one of the things I've noticed with, with your content is, like you said, there's, there's the, the concept and then there's the thing. But the, the thing that makes the concept and the thing work together is the skill set. And you're really big on trying to drive home to people that the skills that you develop are more important than the thing. Without the, because with the skills you can always replace or re, or do something new or come in with a new tactic. But if you don't have the skills, you know you're back to buying from Walmart.
1: You're back to buying the Walmart. And, and a guy, I mean, there's a lot of skills to learn. If you didn't grow up with a tool in your hand, a lot of those things don't come very easily. But the thing that I want to get across is is the attitude of not being afraid to do it, not thinking that I can't do that because I'm an accountant or I can't do that because I do this. It's it's the attitude, you know, that's the, I want to show people, you can do this. You can do this with simple tools. You can do this. And, I mean, I can't tell you the letters that I received, Jack, from people that started with an axe. You know, they didn't grow up with tools. They didn't have any tools. They watched the video. They they got stoked about it. They went and they found the grandfather's axe. And, and a father and a son, that was the first project that they did together. They turned off the TV. They went out to the garage. They turned the video on their iPads, and they followed the steps, and they did it and then they send me the picture and then that just opens up so many things it just changes their paradigm and now they're not afraid to take on things bigger and that's my motivation to do the channel right there
0: you know I think one of the biggest things I give people with advice with that when they have the apprehension is try to remember what it was like when you were a kid and when you wanted to do something you just tried it Um, because I can tell you I'm I'm not unfortunate in in growing up without you know these, these things I grew up hunting and fishing I knew how to to dr field dress a deer when I was eleven years old, I knew how to you know fully butcher a deer by the time I was twelve uh, uh fishing, hunting, trapping. I bought my first car in a combination of salvage scrap metal off an old mountain where a mine was, and trapping income uh but then I went on through the normal you know kind of everyday life thing and getting you know left small town America because there was no opportunity for a young person where I grew up and you know, became successful in corporate America, built a six-figure income, and didn't do that stuff for 15 years. And I found, even for me, having a background in it, when it, like now you've got to do it again, right? You just all of a sudden almost fear doing something you've done in the past. So I have to imagine it's worse for someone that never did these things in the past. And But the amazing thing you find out is none of it's that hard. None of it's that difficult. Now, when I say that, I don't mean you'll just go do it and it'll work. Y- there's a skill development that goes along with just about anything, but it- it's not that hard to start, and you'll get better as you go. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, and how many of us? I mean, you. I'm sure you experience it like I do. There's some looming project that you know that is out there that needs doing, and, and the, when you build it up in your mind and think about it, think about it over the months, it just becomes this huge elephant that becomes this, this obstacle that becomes insurmountable. And then finally, you just resolve up, go get your tool bags and do it. And then 45 minutes later, it's done. You think, why didn't I do this six months ago?
0: Yeah, definitely. I know, like, one of my first big projects I ever did um, coming coming back around to this was I had this old 14-foot flat-bottom aluminum John boat. And I sat for days and days thinking about putting a deck in it and how I would do it. And I kept thinking, well, what about this and what about that? And when I just went out and got some marine grade plywood and, and, and started going to town on it, I realized that all those questions actually got answered when I got into the position of okay, now how do I do this? And I actually had it in front of me. And that if you try to wait till you have all the answers to all those questions before you start, you'll never get the answers, and it'll never get done.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way. When I wanted to build a top bar beehive, um, I just started doing it. You know, and and that that when your mind's engaged and you're thinking about the task at hand that's when you become the most most the most uh, productive and the most creative you just as you say you just need to start doing it
0: what is probably your favorite part about living the way that you do now
1: well my favorite part is i we have been so blessed with having the success of the of the channel that it has allowed us to to focus on that you know so to be able to wake up in the morning and think what is it that i want to do today You know, to be able to – I've always worked in environments where everything was figured out for me, whether I was, you know, putting in a drain field or doing carpentry work. You know, someone has already determined you do this, you follow these rules, you you pound the nail, you put the screw in, you run the electrical wiring this way, and you go home. So to be able to to live on a homestead and and to be able to have – I guess to wake up in the morning and think, what is it I want to do today? And to go out there and to have an idea – and go out into the forest and cut down a tree and, and timber frame building or, or do this or do that. It, it's just, it's wonderful. Um, so that part of it I really like and just being in the environment and away from the noise. I can't hardly really stand to go back into the city anymore. It's just too much for me. It's so intense. The traffic and the aggression and the noise and the buses going by, I just can't wait to get out of it. And I was raised there. But I became so calloused, you know, it's like wearing a, it's like getting calloused. You know, you keep working, 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 living next to a train track. Pretty soon you don't hear it anymore, and that's what's going on in the city. You just become numb to those things when you get away from them and start understanding what it's like to truly have quiet and peace. You, you wonder where it was all your life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, another question for you here as we get toward the end. You have kids, don't you, that are like school age? How do you manage that? Do they go to a rural school? Do you guys homeschool?
1: Yeah, we have uh, one boy, Jack, and we homeschool.
0: And, and how's that working out for you? Because a lot of the parents that listen to the show are homeschoolers, and I, I think that they get tired of hearing things like, you know, only a person with a college degree in teaching can teach a fourth grader how to do, you know, time tables.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you'd be the judge. You go put your kids in a public school with 32, 34 kids in there and one teacher. How much education do you think they're going to get? I mean, really. I mean, and what happens if they learn differently and they start to fall behind? So don't be afraid of not being qualified to homeschool because there are so many resources now. And the public schools have gotten so bad in so many locations that it's just essentially forced people to step up and to start doing it because they can see that it's destructive. It can be destructive to the kids. So you need to plug in in what you're going to find in rural communities. You know, one of those things you need to look for when you're looking at property is are there a lot of homeschoolers there? Where we're at is a real mecca for homeschoolers and so my wife gets together with other homeschoolers and they have field trips and the kids get together and they can play and do soccer or do whatever they want but the curriculum is out there and if you can read and write you can essentially follow the curriculum and there's so many that are available that uh, there just really isn't an excuse to do it you don't have to have a college degree and that does not that's not a qualification for being a good teacher at all
0: no no and i've always said and I, I make one of my uh sister-in-laws who is a teacher very angry when i say this but i mean technically a fifth grader with straight a's should be qualified to teach the fourth grade I mean, that's just technically. technically I, you know, it's just technically. I understand there's certain things about controlling a classroom and psychology and things like that. But, but from a technical standpoint, a fifth grader with straight A's has every bit of technical ability that you could ever be necessary to explain to someone how the fourth grade works. And, and I, like I said, I know I hack teachers off with that, but it's it's just the you way gotta that it is.
1: At, you got to look at te- you got to look at education differently. You know, there's a lot of conditioning with the traditional school. What I don't like about it is you show up for class, ring the bell. What does that tell you? Okay, ring the bell. It's like a rat in a trap. Time to learn. Learn the subject. Ring the bell. So it's like ring the bell, start thinking. Ring the bell, stop thinking. Ring the bell, get in the line, go do this. It's it's not a – you don't form your homeschooling curriculum. You don't model it after a failed system. Homeschooling is done all day around here. When I'm in the shop, we're reading tape measures, we're cutting the board, Jack is learning the numbers. He's doing arithmetic, reading the tape. He's doing geometry, doing carpentry work. When we're working on the quads, he's learning about things. He's learning metric versus standard. You know, it's, it's the in edu- your talking, and we're, we're a big reading family. We don't have a television, so, you know, we, we read and just devour books, and, and that makes homeschooling fun. We're not just sitting down, and think we've got to put the five hours in at the table, and we've got to follow this curriculum. It's about going for a kite. It's about going and exploring the tape it's about going on a field trip it's about going skiing and talking about all of the different trees and asking him to identify the different species of uh, and, and and all what plants can you eat and going mushroom picking you know it's such an incredible education that you couldn't even touch in the public system
0: yeah i completely agree now my son did go through conventional education i mean back when he, he's 24 now we didn't even have a clue it was really an option back when he was little But I I have a story about that that a lot of homeschoolers tend to really enjoy. Um, He was probably, I think, in second grade, and he went to school one day, and the teacher's, like, you know, asking different kids, you know, what did you do yesterday? Because it would have been, you know, they're coming off a weekend. And he's like, we made beer because I'm a brewer, you know. So parent-teacher night is, like, three days away from this. So she's like, I have this concern. Matthew said he made beer, and I don't know if that's what a second grader needs to be doing. I'm like, well, he's not drinking it. You know, and we wouldn't have him drinking it, you know. And he's, she's like, well, I just don't know. I said, well, my son has learned biology, chemistry, algebra, and history, making beer with me. Have you taught him biology, chemistry, algebra, and history yet? And the conversation just shifted. It was over. Yeah. There was no more discussing it. You know, I'm I, the kid could do a, at that age an algebraic formula That that most most students that are good students in 11th grade couldn't do to calculate specific gravity and alpha acids and explain the biology and reproduction cycle of yeast because it was something real and that's what's lacking in our school. There's nothing real. It's all ethereal. It's all in a book and it's all one size fits all for everybody. And I think this is why we're starting to look at like science fairs, spelling bees, scholarships. Homeschool kids are just dominating. And if you looked at it on a, um, what sort of a per capita, like, you know, how, what percentage are winning versus what percentage of kids are homeschooled, it would be even bigger than it already looks. And I, I don't think mainstream likes it, but it's proof that, you know, children respond differently to different situations. And who knows your kid better than you?
1: It's so true, you know, and it's just an interesting anecdote. I was talking to a guy that, uh, is the human resources department with, um, one of the big defense contractors, I forget Lockheed or something like that. And for years and years, they hired the best and brightest stri- strictly on academic out of college. And what they were finding was in, in cutting-edge technology and creative areas where you really needed to, be, have, to have, have the ability to critically think and to be creative, these kids, these young, young adults, had no abilities. They could follow the rules. They could tell you the formula. They knew what they had been taught to memorize, but they could not be creative. And what they're finding is that they no longer hire like that. They want to know if they're going to put someone in a position like that, how was he raised? Was he raised with a father or with a mother that taught them how to fix the lawnmower? Were they raised with tools? Were they raised to learn how, how how to to be independent? Which, if you don't raise your kids that way, if they're not in the shop with you working or in the garden or in the kitchen cooking, you know, they they are really handicapped when they become older and the ability to really be creative and critically thinking.
0: I, I completely agree with that. So, I mean, we're, we're coming up about close to the end of an hour here on our timeline. So, with the, you know, could you come up with maybe some final thoughts for people, That are still stuck in the rat race that have the dream of one day and, you know, maybe give them a little encouragement that one day can be soon and that if you, if you wait for one day to be one day, it may never come.
1: Yeah, the thing is, is you really need to sit down with your spouse if you have a family and, and to get, get real about this. And you guys need to be on the same page because oftentimes the people I talk to, the husband's gung ho, he's ready to do it. Men are more, men, men are willing to take risks more than women. It's just the way that we're made, it's not better it's just the way it is that's why it's nice to have to, to have a good wife to help you from really jumping out the deep end and making a mistake you know because yeah delightful be like,
0: I can't tell you how many times I've been ready to do so in my wife's like, just wait till tomorrow
1: <laughs> yeah and, and and oftentimes you're the better man for it.
0: Yes, yeah, so
1: you know and, and that's why you, you know the, 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 the marriage of man and woman that you alluded to it earlier about coming one plush it truly is it takes the best attributes of humanity, which the men has, which is strength and courage, and it takes the best attributes that the women have, which is prude, prudence and caution. And, and marry those together, you get the whole person. You know, you don't get this lopsided creature running off making bad decisions you know, don't regretting them. It really helps to, to be on board and to be able to to really talk about it and to make the decision together. Once you guys make that decision, you know, and you really become focused and that becomes primary to you, um, and you really attack, attack your finances, you can do it. And I can tell you what, I can tell you that the life that we had before with the two six-figure incomes and coming home to a cold house and eating out three or four meals a day because everyone's too tired or too exhausted to cook, that was not a home, and that was no way to live, and that was no way to raise our, our, our boy. And we realized that. We knew that we were doing it wrong, even though everyone telling us was telling us that we were on the right path of doing things the way we should be done. Coming out here, we don't have as much, but we have time, and that's the thing that matters. You know, All those baubles and those cars, all those things are forgotten when your kids have grown up and don't want anything to do with you because you didn't raise them and didn't spend any time with them. So now is the time to do that, and, and if you're focused and you're working together, there's no reason why
0: you can't. I completely agree with that. You want to tell folks how they can find you? Because, I mean, you're not a blogger or anything. You are a YouTuber. That's, that's your thing. You've got your channel, so how can people find your YouTube channel?
1: Yeah, they can uh, follow or you can just go to WranglerStar.com and that will take you right to our YouTube channel and uh, we are essentially are our, our homesteaders and, and we I upload two or three videos a week. My wife does uh, Wednesday videos that um, you talk about um, homesteading from a woman's perspective, but primarily it's, it's driven by, you know, my videos and I put up, this uh, three or four a week and following along our experience and our failures and our triumphs and a lot of how-to stuff and just to encourage people and to lead the way.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you for two things that you just kind of glossed over there. Number one is that you include your failures. Um, There's way too many people out there that are way too quick to delete anything with their failures on it, and that's where we learn the most. So the people that are following us, they learn it from our failures as well. Uh, so that's that's a big thing. And the other thing is that you do video all this and you do document, you do put it up. I know for a fact there's been times where I've done a project and if I had just done it, I could have done it in 20% of the time or less than it took me to make sure the camera was right, to get the angles, to make sure the audio was right, and not to mention editing and uploading and all the other things. So it, 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 a lot of people think, well, you know, you just live there and you just do this stuff, so it's not a big deal to, to video it. And I'm telling you, doing something like, I I did a back porch cooking series where I was cooking for like a week out on my porch with my rocket stoves and stuff like that. Just making sure the ingredients are all put together where it's easy to explain what they are and everything. So much more complicated than just going out there and doing it. So thank you for taking the time so that you can share your experience with others. And and thanks for being on the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jack. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I, I, I enjoyed talking to you. It was a lot of fun
0: cool, man. Well, you're welcome back anytime you want. Uh, Just get on the site, fill up the guest form when it's back. Anyway, for everybody else out there, uh, we're not taking guest submissions until the first of the year. We're booked out into February, Uh, but we'd have you back on anytime, Cody. And again, I appreciate you being here today. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Cody Crone, helping you figure out how to live that better life if cops get tough or even if they don't.